Well, this time, kids, if you've been uh, worshiping with us and you're still here, you are welcome to go to the back to Hope Kids. Thanks for being a part of our service up to this point. Well, as Pastor Eric said, uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Malachi today. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open to the book of Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. And if you weren't with us last week, as, um, again, as Pastor Eric was mentioning, uh, we, we've been, we started a book, or excuse me, a series in the book of Malachi. Um, uh, the book of Malachi, if you weren't with us, uh, it's a prophet, one of the minor prophets. Uh, it was written to the Israelites who had come back from the exile, had rebuilt their temple that had been destroyed, and these Israelites are kind of under Persian rule. So it's not a particularly great time in the life of Israel. Uh, they'd come back to a rebuilt, they'd come back to rebuild the temple. They weren't independent. They had very little control over their lives. The second temple was miserably less glorious than the first had been. And Malachi has come back to give God's message to these people. And so we are going to be going through this book as well over the next couple weeks. Um, we're going to do it a little differently today than normal. We, normally we read uh, a passage all together. And we go back and kind of talk about it. Today we're going to read uh, as we go throughout the, throughout the sermon. It's a very, it's a long set of, um, long set of verses, a lot of text that we're going to be covering today. But, I, but um, as we go through it, I hope we can kind of continue to pay attention as we go. Um, that would be a helpful way to break it up today. Now there's a question that's underneath our passage today. And that question is this, how is it that you get close to God? How do you get close to God? Now, it's no surprise that it's a part of our passage. This question of how human beings get close to God, frankly, frames a whole lot of the Old Testament, and it frames a whole lot of the New Testament as well. It's a frame for a lot of our Bibles, because from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned and had to leave the Garden of Eden, leave God's presence, God's people were stuck with this, this gap that existed between them and God. And then the Bible ends, Scripture ends with this picture of Jesus coming back, God's Son coming back to live with us in a new Jerusalem. God with us one more time. But all of us live in the middle of those two times right now. We live after Genesis has happened, we're separated from God, before Jesus has come back to live with us. And so that question of how do we get close to God is an important one today. Now, we're going to be talking today a lot about priests and a lot about sacrifices, priests and sacrifices. Those aren't concepts that are particularly familiar to us today, uh, but those were two really important parts of how God provided the means by which his people could draw near to him and worship through the priests and through sacrifices. Now, there's a lot going on in these verses that we're going to read, but those are two of the main things I want us to be paying attention to and listening for as we read. God's attention to these priests and sacrifices because God cared God cares about bringing his people close to him. God cares about bringing us near to him. So here are the main points we're going to be looking at today as we go through this passage. Again, we're going to read the text as we go, as we get to each point. The first is this. If we don't fear God as we ought, then we can't worship him as we ought. Second, if we don't worship God as we ought, then we can't be near God Finally, God's people need a priest who can bring them near God. We go through this again. If we don't fear God as we ought, we can't worship as we ought. If we don't worship God as we ought, we can't be near God. 
God's people need a priest who can bring them near to God. And it's my hope today as we go through this, uh, this passage in Malachi that we would be amazed at how deeply our God wants to bring his people into his presence. And we'd also be amazed at the lengths that he has gone to do just that. So this week we're getting to the second section of Malachi's book. You may remember the, uh, the book of Malachi is broken up into several different sections. This section is addressed, again, specifically to the priests. Last week's passage, God was making the point to all of Israel that he loved them, and it had nothing to do with what they had done. It was purely because of God's love for them. And today, or at least in our passage that we're going to be looking at today, God is turning now his attention to the priests of Israel. And so, uh, take a look down. If you have it up in your Bibles, Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 Malachi begins this section to the priest by giving these two comparisons. This is where we're going to start with our first point. If we don't fear God as we ought, we can't worship him as we ought. So read with me, Malachi 1.6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, <clears throat> where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. Now God's starting the section out right away, right away, by exposing something that's true of the hearts of the priests, by pointing out something kind of in this comparison way. It's one of those, if X is true, then how much more so of Y, right? So if a son's going to honor his father and a servant's going to honor his master, then how much more so should God's representatives to God's people be honoring and fearing God himself, these were the ones, these, these priests played a very important role in the life of Israel. They were the ones that represented God to the rest of the people. And instead of honor and fear that these priests are giving to God, instead what God is saying is, you have in fact despised my name. We'll come back to that, that, that idea of, of them despising God's name in a moment. But these priests immediately counter in verse 7, if you can see that there. Counter at the, excuse me, at the end of verse 6. They say, how have we despised your name? And God tells them in verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. Now again, in Malachi's time, these priests were the representatives of God to his people, but they played a lot of uh, important roles in kind of the life of uh, God's people. Uh, they were the ones who were responsible for teaching God's people what God had given them in the law. Uh, they were the ones who were responsible for caring for the temple. They were responsible for uh, bringing the animals or accepting the animals that people would bring and the food that people would bring as sacrifices and then uh, sacrificing them to God, doing the actual sacrificing. So it's almost like, a, in today's words, it'd almost be like a pastor meets like a building caretaker, meets a butcher. All of those were parts of the priest's job as they were participating in the worship of God's people. And all of those things, all those parts, especially these sacrifices, were part of how the Israelites were to worship God and how God was teaching his people both what he was like, but also what they were like. So each time they would bring these sacrifices, it was a teaching opportunity to learn what God was like, what the Israelites were like, to show the Israelites that they were sinners who had wronged God by their sin and that something had to die for that sin if they wanted to draw near to God. And it was meant to show God's holiness to them as well. Now, it's worth mentioning uh, the sacrifices that the Israelites, are give, the Israelites would give, uh, those were not what were saving them 
right? There's never been a point in history where uh, we, we give something to God in order to be saved, right? This was their response to the fact that God had chosen them in his, as his people. And Scripture's really clear. All throughout, all throughout Scripture, God's people are saved not by what they do, but by faith in God, by God's grace alone through faith in him. And so these sacrifices were the Israelites' rightful response to the fact that God had saved them. It was their worship, and it was part of how God allowed them to draw near to him. Now again, these priests were the ones who actually did the sacrificing on behalf of the people. So in terms of Israel's relationship to God, in terms of their worship of God, it was a really, really important role as we're going to continue to see as we keep going. So that's kind of a big overview of what the priests were supposed to be doing. But let's go back to verse 7 again. We're going to see these priests are not doing that. So again, the priests respond to God, second half of verse 7. They say, but, but you say, how have we polluted you? That's the priest's response back to God. How have we polluted you? Now, if you notice in verse 7 there at the end, the priests aren't actually contesting that the food they're offering is polluted. What they're asking is, how is it that the polluted food is actually polluting God? You see that? They're saying, how is it, how have we polluted you? And God's going to respond by explaining to them exactly how they had done that. All right, so now we're in the last part of verse 7. Sorry these, these verses are so chunked up, but there's a lot of back and forth in each verse. So last part of verse 7, now we're going to read through the end of verse 10. This is God's now again response to the priests. By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Now we're starting to get a better sense of exactly what the priests were doing wrong here. They were, they were accepting and sacrificing animals that weren't worthy of being sacrifices. They were deformed in some way. So polluted food doesn't mean that it was expired or it had gone bad or something like that. It meant that they were, they were giving animals that didn't meet God's requirements for a sacrifice. So back in Leviticus 22, God gives Aaron and the priests uh, the requirements for what they're to look for when people bring an animal as a sacrifice. So he says, Leviticus 22:20, 20, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And then and one verse later, he says this in 22, animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. So in other words, God didn't want people bringing him their animals that they couldn't do a lot with, right? These, these were kind of like the leftover animals, the ones that didn't have much value, and then saying, this is my offering to you, God. The offerings were supposed to be an actual offering, and the priest's job was to ensure that these animals met that criteria. So when someone would bring an animal, there was another opportunity for the priest to be teaching these people what God was like by making sure that what they were offering was appropriate for what they were giving. And these priests that Malachi was writing to weren't doing this, apparently. Or they thought that the offerings were at least good enough, or maybe they were just better than nothing. 
But that's not the case. You can see from verse 10, God's saying he actually wishes someone would just shut the doors to the temple rather than accept these terrible, these deformed sacrifices. It'd be better if there were no offerings at all. As biblical scholar Peter Adams puts it, God was angry because these priests were misusing the very means that God had graciously put in place to make it possible for them to be in his presence. They were misusing the temple and the sacrifices. Now, you might be wondering at this point why exactly what God wasn't willing to accept these animals. Again, the Israelites were in pretty rough economic times. They didn't have a lot of economic certainty. It was not, uh, times were not good. So why wouldn't God be okay with them offering these animals that were less than ideal as their sacrifices? And God's going to explain it to us in verses 11 and 12. So read with me verses 11 and 12. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. So God's explained to these priests that when they allow polluted food to be brought to God's altar, it's reflecting badly on God's name, both to the Israelites and also to the surrounding nations. Because when the priests allowed someone to bring a deformed animal as a sacrifice, this was communicating something wrong. So when a guy would bring, say an Israelite would bring a, a lamb that was scabby or maybe blind, leftover sheep of some kind, they, these priests, by accepting it, were communicating that that was good enough for God. And if a leftover sheep is good enough for God, the not-so-subtle message that the priest is then communicating is that the gap between God and this sinful Israelite is actually smaller than it really is. And that uh, is <laughs> that God's name, God himself, isn't actually as great as he truly is. So when they would accept these animals, it was a way of that they were despising God's great and holy name. When I was working my first full-time job out of college, I was representing uh, my boss and his company at, a, at another client. I was a fundraising consultant. Um, my boss had in incredibly high standards for how I dressed, how I shaved. Um, very, he would go spend hours going through the materials I would make looking for typos. He actually went shopping with me multiple times to buy clothes for me, to tell me to wear those clothes when I would go to the clients. Which is great, I got a lot of free clothes. But, um, and the reasons he had these standards for me is because when I would go to the client, I was representing him to, to that client. So if I showed up with like a scraggly beard or clothes that looked kind of whatever, um, then that client was going to attribute that to me. They would think Jared's sloppy, but they would also then think that the company was sloppy, right? Because they were, I was representing them to uh, I was representing my company to him. And because I wanted to honor my boss, and because I also had a proper fear of his ability to take me off payroll, I did it, right? I dressed this way. I did those things. Now, there's a similar idea going on here. God's representatives, these priests, apparently weren't really fearing God in any real way. And we know that because they weren't obeying his instructions. They didn't care about what they gave to God. And that that would defame the name of God. And so when the priests were accepting these polluted offerings, they were despising God's great and holy name. 
They likely thought they might have been helping their fellow Israelites out by doing this, but that was completely not true, completely the opposite. All of us and all those Israelites were designed to magnify God by being in awe of his greatness and how different and holy he is than us. These priests apparently were more concerned about making it easy for the people of Israel than they were about upholding God's standards. They weren't fearing God, and that was leading to the breakdown of Israel's worship. These priests didn't see it, see that. And so we get to these priests' final response in verse 13. It's not pretty. So look at me again. Look with me again, verse 13. But you say, What a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? says the Lord. So when these priests are confronted with their sin, this is their response. They snort. They say that they find God's standards too hard, too high, too exhausting to keep. And then they keep on bringing the stolen or sick or lame animals as their sacrifices. They don't fear God at all, and it's destroyed their worship. Now, I doubt any of us have ever tried to give a leftover sheep to God as a sacrifice. I've never received a leftover sheep from someone to give to God as a sacrifice. But we're prone to similar temptations, just as those Israelites were. In Romans 12.1, Paul says that we now present God, our bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. That that is our spiritual act of worship. So just like the Israelites, it doesn't save us, but that sacrifice of giving God our lives is the rightful response to God who has saved us. And it is part of how we draw near to him in worship. So I want you to think about that for a minute. That your body, your life, in other words, all of you, is your sacrifice to God. And so then, I want you to think about that for a moment. What kind of sacrifice is it that you are bringing to God? How much of your life have you given to him? I think for many of us, we're often tempted to give God the leftovers of that sacrifice. And we may try to ignore some of the ways that we are defiling that sacrifice that we give to him as well by not caring about our holiness. We can easily give him the leftovers of our time or our attention or our resources. We can think to ourselves that the little things, the little sins, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, isn't that big of a deal. But when we do that, we are defaming God's holiness by not holding his standards of holiness high, giving God a partial or a polluted sacrifice. But that's not enough for God. He wants all of you. And he wants you to be holy. He wants you to be pursuing holiness in his strength. And it honors him and lifts up his name. That is how, part of how we draw near to him in our worship. Now, unfortunately, these priests are not going in that direction. Let's move on to our second point. These next two points will be shorter, I promise. We'll move on to our second point. If we don't worship God as we ought, we can't be near God. Now, you might notice verse 14, as we read it, it's kind of subtly shifting to talking about the consequences of the priest's actions. There are consequences for both the people of Israel and for the priests. So read with me, verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. 
For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now this is uh, the only part of our passage that is particularly directed at all of the Israelites. The rest is directed at the, the priests. And essentially what God is saying is just because the priests aren't doing their jobs, just because they're accepting inappropriate circ- uh, uh, de- de- deformed sacrifices, deformed animals as sacrifices, does not exonerate people who try to uh, vow to God that they're going to give him his, their best, their best sheep, and then they show up with a, with a lame one or a deformed one. It doesn't exonerate them. It's called cheating. And God calls them a cheat. Then Malachi shifts back to the priests. So again, look it down again with me. Chapter 2, verse 1. Consequences for the priests. So now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So I know all of us now are thinking about the end of verse 3, and dung on the face. We're going to get to that in a moment. Just to look at these curses in order, though, um, you might be wondering what it means to be cursed by God. This isn't like a voodoo curse or something. Uh, when God set up his covenants with people, there were consequences uh, that God would give them if they disobeyed. There were blessings if they obeyed. There were consequences if they disobeyed. Those were often called covenant curses. So uh, first, God is going to curse the priest's blessings. So when these priests pronounce blessings on the people of God, one of their jobs, it would not actually be what they thought it was. They would not actually be doing the people any favors. It would not be a good thing. In fact, it would be a curse. The second curse on the priests, God is going to rebuke their offspring. In other words, the Levitical priesthood has failed. We see that so clearly in Malachi. The Levitical priesthood has failed, and God is going to cut it off. And then finally, God's going to spread dung on the priest's faces, which is a strange image to read in your Bible. Um, It's worth a laugh. Um, God's just threatening threatening to spread dung on the faces of the priests. It's hard not to laugh a bit at that. Uh, But when the people would bring their animals to be sacrificed, just to kind of get in our minds what God's saying with this, uh, when the people would bring their animals to be sacrificed, all of the insides of the animals, the, the organs, the entrails, as they're often called, and the dung had to be taken out of the sacrifice. They had to be taken away from the temple because they were unclean. They had to be taken away to where they could be burned because dung was unclean. Dung couldn't be in the presence of God. So this wasn't just a gross threat. It wasn't a priest who had dung smeared on his face couldn't do the work of a priest because he was unclean, and everybody would be able to see it. So these priests weren't doing their jobs, and so what God is saying is he's going to expose their hypocrisy. He's going to expose their wicked hearts and their uncleanness so that everyone could see the reality that these priests were unclean and unfit for their duties. Dung didn't belong in God's presence. It belonged in the dung heap. These priests' polluted worship meant that they also did not belong with God. There are serious consequences, and always have been, for spiritual leaders of God's people if they lead them away from God, when it is their job to teach people about God and help them to draw near to him. If you want to see God's heart for his people's worship, 
Pay attention in Scripture to what happens to the folks who get between God's people and their worship of God. They get their tables flipped over, whipped. They're threatened that it'd be better for them to be at the bottom of a sea with millstones tied around their neck. They get dung spread on their faces. All of us, unfortunately, we've talked about this over the past few months, we've seen the damage that happens when church leaders interfere with the worship of God's people or lead them away or teach them in faulty ways. It's disastrous and it's damaging. So as all of us here think about how to apply a passage like this, this part of the passage, we ask you to please be praying for those who are your spiritual leaders. As Eric and I, Pastor Eric and I were talking about this passage this week, he, he, he mentioned this is a clear place where we need God's people to be praying for those who, us elders who are spiritually leading this church and those who are your spiritual leaders. So please be praying for us that we would fear and honor God over everything else, that we would teach this church in truth because those warnings that God gives, those are real warnings and they're terrifying. Be praying for your spiritual leaders. So going back to Malachi, this leaves us in an interesting place. God's people don't have good teaching from their priests. The priests themselves are having their blessings turned into curses by God, and they are unclean and unfit for their duties as priests. So we're going to end with our final point now. God's people need a faithful priest to bring them near to God. So read with me, starting in chapter 2, verse 4. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenants of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so, I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. So almost as if those curses weren't enough to make the point, Malachi now starts comparing the priests to the ways that the Levites were supposed to act. Now you may be wondering why Malachi suddenly starts talking about Levi here. Uh, Levi was one of Jacob's sons. His line became one of the tribes of Israel. And it was a rule that all priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. Not all Levites had to be priests, but all priests had to be Levites. If that makes sense. And these priests, again, were supposed to be living in proper, holy fear of God. And that fear would lead to life and peace as they kept God's covenants. They kept God's instructions for how to live. And as they did that, their instruction to the people would then also lead them in paths of life and peace. Instead, these priests in Malachi's day looked nothing like this priest that Malachi describes. And in a way, you probably noticed this as we were reading, in a way, Malachi's describing the ideal priest. A priest who stood in awe of God's name, verse 6. True instruction found in his mouth. 
no wrong found on his lips, walking with God in peace and uprightness and turning many from iniquity, which is nothing like the priests in Malachi's day. And then Malachi concludes the list by saying in verse 7, a priest is supposed to guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from him as a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But that is not what God's people had in their priests in this moment. But it is what they needed. And God knew that. God knew his people needed a priest to help them draw near to him. And so that is why he sent Jesus. The Levitical priesthood had failed, but it was always meant to be pointing ahead to something better, to someone better. Someone better than the Levites. It was pointing ahead to when Jesus would himself become our great and our faithful high priest. Now, Eric read this, this, this passage this morning as our call to worship. I want to read it one more time for us today. Now, if you actually want to get a full picture of how Jesus, in many ways, fulfills uh, the priesthood, you should read a lot of Hebrews. Hebrews 7 through 10 would be a great place to start. But we can't do that this morning, so we're just going to read these three verses one more time. So Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22, says this. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus has bridged the gap for those who trust in him. Now, the reality is, is, if you've been listening, that's what we've been talking about, and the ways that we are to worship God by offering our bodies in, in holiness and all of ourselves to God. None of us do that the way that we should. None of us do that the way that we should. None of us fear God the way that we ought to, the way that he deserves. None of us worship him perfectly. And so, none of us are able to actually draw near to God on our own. So that's why Jesus came. Jesus came and offered himself as the sacrifice for the sins of his followers when he died on the cross. So that those who do put their trust in him and commit their lives to him can draw near to God. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus here, this is true of you. Jesus has opened the way for you to draw near to God. And now your response, your rightful response, is to give him your life. That's the sacrifice that you now bring to God as your act of worship. And he promises to give us the strength to help us in our pursuit of holiness as we follow him with our lives. And if you aren't a follower of Jesus, this is the only way that you can actually be near God. There are no other religions. There are no spirituality practices that will help you become closer to God, to become more attuned to him. And as much as you might want to believe it, God's not just going to understand that you did your best one day. Because your best is not good enough. Your best is going to land you in the dung heap, away from God's presence. The only sacrifice that is enough to pay the price of your sin was the death of Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus calls himself the perfect, spotless lamb of God which I find so striking, that God calls himself a lamb because he came as the sacrifice for our sin. 
That's what our faithful high priest has done. He's bridged the gap between his followers and God. And so now we can, through his sacrifice, draw near to God. We serve a God who cares deeply about his people. Again, we see this all through Scripture. God cares deeply about bringing his people into his presence, back near to himself. And this is the way that he's given us to come and to draw near to him, through the death of Jesus Christ. And we're about to celebrate the Lord's table where we we take time to remember the lengths that God went to to draw us near to himself, what he's done. So as we do that today, I encourage you, for those who are followers of Jesus, thank God for how far he was willing to go to close that gap, to bring you into God's presence. Ask him to show you if there are places in your life that you haven't given to him fully as a sacrifice. Remember that Jesus, our great high priest, has paid the price for the sins of his people. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing to us that you want to draw us near to yourself. We're grateful that you have, throughout all of history, been providing for ways for stubborn sinners to be near to you, most clearly in sending Jesus Christ. We thank you for all the ways that you have been working all through history to point to that spotless Lamb of God who came to take the sins of a broken world so that we could be with you. And Father, if we're honest, we know that our lives are small and insignificant sacrifices compared to what Jesus gave for us. But we thank you that you still chose to accept, you still choose to accept them through Christ. So I ask that you would be at work in the hearts of all those who are here today. I ask that you'd be weighing on the hearts of those who maybe are not following you yet. Father, would you bring them to repentance and help them to see the only way that they can be near to you is through Christ? For those here who are yours, we ask that you would give us gratitude, conviction in our life where we need it, that you would help us to give ourselves to you in worship, and that we would receive your life in peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.